earlier this year, in February, Time Magazine had a special mind-body issue titled, How Faith Can Heal. So you know, if faith healing has reached the cover of Time Magazine, there's some interest in it. So I did a, um, a Google search on uh, healing through meditation, 13 million web pages. Spirituality and health, 16 million web pages. And back in uh, 2002, there was a uh, report of the power of intercessory prayer for healing. People on the East Coast praying for the health and well-being of people on the West Coast who didn't even know they were being prayed for. Fantastic results. Since that uh, first reported in 2002, there have been more than 6,000 other scientific research experiments measuring the same thing. So we've come a long ways in more than 30 years from measuring the relaxation response of TM, meditation, and now mapping the functioning of the brain through uh, functional MRIs uh, in meditation. And increasingly the uh, research has become more scientific, more rigorous, and has greater medical applications. We all know, or we've all heard of the effects of uh, mindfulness in managing stress, uh, in dealing with pain, and more recently mindfulness uh, meditation has been uh, confirmed to be of uh, benefit in preventing recurrent depression relapse and for enhanced well-being and actually changing the function and the size of the brain. So. If mindfulness can have such a wide-ranging effect, where's the pill? We've all been practicing mindfulness today, even if this is your first time. Many of you have been practicing for many years, if not decades. And we know that mindfulness is really nothing more than paying attention, awareness with understanding. It sounds so simple, and in fact, it really is. But our minds are complex, and so it takes a lot of instruction, a lot of encouragement, a lot of inspiration, a lot of uh, entertainment in order to get us to actually do it. We may all know that it's good for us, but like a lot of medicine, it's hard to take. So. But when we think of what mindfulness actually is, it's a capacity that every person has, every being has this capacity to be aware. It's not a particularly esoteric uh, quality of mind. It's not even particularly spiritual. It's a very ordinary thing that is available to everyone. And it can be developed through training. There are two elements in the development of 
mindfulness or the development of the mind. And the first is to stabilize our attention. That's the first thing we try to do is stabilize our attention so that we can pay attention moment to moment. And the second element is to develop clearer perception from that stability of attention. So the first element, the stability of mind, is really what we call concentration of mind. Concentration is not quite accurate to my way of thinking. I like collectedness of mind or continuity of attention. That's all that concentration or stability of attention is. The continuity of attention. How many moments in a day or how many moments in an hour or how many moments in a minute you can be attentive and recognize what your experience is. Well, you've all been practicing for a couple of hours today, a couple of sittings today. You know, even with the best of intention, in an ideal environment, among a group of people all trying to do the same thing, it's still really difficult. It's not difficult to do, but it's challenging to get any sustained continuity to our attention. But even if you practice for a full day, and some of you have practiced or have done retreats for a week or 10 days or more, you can see that even in a day, it gets better. In a over the course of a nine-day retreat, you really notice the difference. Richie Davidson is uh, director of the lab for neuroscience in the University of Wisconsin. And he's been doing some uh, tests on uh, Tibetan monks. And he meets with the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama every year. And in fact, he's actually been testing uh, a lot of the meditators at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, where I used to work and, and, and go. And he says of this ability to concentrate the mind or to develop attention of mind, it's my belief that the emotional mind shouldn't be treated any differently than any other component of the mind or the body. Happiness can be thought of as a skill that can be learned in a way that is not dissimilar from learning to play a musical instrument or an athletic skill. If you practice, you will get better at it. And there are some detectable changes after even a week of training. Meditators do change the function of their brain over time and in a rather enduring way. Evidence suggests that these changes that are associated with positive emotions and anxiety reduction and an increase in antibodies of as much as 25% really do persist. And they infuse everyday life with the qualities cultivated by meditation. Collecting the mind, developing a momentum of continuity to your attention, makes the mind powerful. The mind can do what it does more effectively, more continuously, more powerfully. And I had this demonstrated to me uh, years ago when a Burmese monk 
visited the meditation center where I was staying in Massachusetts. And he'd been a monk who was developing his mind by doing concentration practices for many, many years, decades. And he comes into a room like this, and 40 or 50 people like yourselves come into the room for a question-answer session. And he looks around the room, and he goes, are you a doctor? The guy said, yeah, how'd you know that? He goes, oh, are you a doctor? They too were a doctor. You work in medicine? Every time he identified every doctor in the room. They weren't wearing scrubs. They didn't have their little badge on. They didn't have any little nurse's hat or anything like that. It's the power of the mind. He was displaying the power of the mind to know what is going on beyond what we understand is possible. But it's possible. That's the power of the mind. When the mind is so concentrated, so developed, and so powerful, it knows things that we, in our undeveloped minds, think is, well, magical, or mysterious, or supernormal. It's normal if you develop the mind. Many of you have been on retreat where Kamala or some other teacher will teach loving-kindness meditation, metta-meditation. Well, there's been some research done on metta-meditation by uh, Bob Fedrickson at the University of North Carolina. And she says, results show that this meditation practice produces increases over time in daily experiences of positive emotions which in turn produced increase in a wide range of personal resources, such as increased mindfulness, increased purpose in life, increased social support, decreased illness symptoms. And in turn, these increments in personal resources predicted increased life satisfaction and reduced depressive symptoms. She concludes by saying loving-kindness meditation is an intervention strategy that produces positive emotions in a way that outpaces the hedonic treadmill effect, meaning metta is better for you than just chocolate <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Although chocolate's good, they found that out too. <laughs> so we can see that if the mind is developed, the continuity of attention is de developed, then the mind is more powerful. The second element of, of mindfulness meditation is to develop clear perception, to really understand, to see what is going on in the body, in the mind, in your environment, in your experience, and to see it clearly, not through the lens of your distorted preferences, cultural conditioning, personal ideas, philosophical beliefs, but to see, really, this is the way it is. Well, Dan Goleman, 
who the author of Emotional Intelligence that many of you have know about, friend of ours, wrote his first book was called The Meditative Mind. And in it he talks about the development of mind from a normal consciousness, us ordinary people that, or people that never practice, to those who practice a lot. And he says of the normal consciousness, you know, ordinary people. The ordinary normal consciousness is often highly unhealthy with a general heaviness and unwieldiness of mental processes where force of habit predominates and changes and adaptations are undertaken slowly and unwillingly and to the smallest degree possible where our thought is rigid and inclined to dogma and it takes a long time to learn from our experience or advice our affections and our aversions are fixed and biased and in general the character proves more or less inaccessible Whew, good thing we've been practicing <laughs> but we know what he's talking about because all of us drop into that old familiar my way or no way and we've seen the stiffness of our own mind we see how often we rely on dogma and preference and our biases it's not the path of happiness mindful awareness with wisdom brings or through which we cultivate a more balanced mind less reactive mind we're not so emotionally reactive to the ordinary events let alone the dramatic events that come through our life there's a, uh, a famous uh, research uh, study done in UCLA where they had people name their emotion. Well, they didn't have them name their emotion. They had them name the emotion of a person in a picture that they saw. Naming your emotions begins to tame them doesn't mean you cut yourself off from your emotions it just means that you're not being victimized by them where if you can name your emotion you begin to get a little distance from it you begin to oh, recognize it as an experience rather than feel that it is who I am great relief they're doing more refined studies now on naming not only emotions but naming other experiences we have and noticing the dramatic, actually, effects of what clear perception does for the mind. Not only is there a development of non-reactivity, there is this clarity of perception where we move from fixed, biased perceptions due to our conditioning, family conditioning, cultural conditioning, political party conditioning or whatever to a more open responsive clarity to what's actually happening Dan Goldman goes on to identify the characteristics of the healthy type of personality which until recently was not found in Western literature Western psychological literature only dealt with what's wrong with you without positing what could be made 
best in the human mind. Only recently have they started to develop this. He says, the ideal healthy type of personality is without greed for sense desire, without anxiety or resentment or fear of any sort, where dogmatisms, aversions to loss, disgrace, pain, and blame aren't present, where there's without lust, without anger, without suffering, and where the need for approval, pleasure, praise, and desire for anything for oneself beyond what's essential is absent. There is a prevalence of impartiality towards others and an equilibrium at all times, with an ongoing alertness and calm delight in ordinary as well as boring experiences. There's a strong compassion and loving kindness with the quick and accurate perceptions, and one is able to maintain composure and skill in action, being open to others and responsive to their needs. Well, it's a good thing we're practicing because we all know that's the direction that practice takes us. We do open up. We do become more responsive rather than reactive. We, we are more sensitive to ourselves and others. And we don't need so much stuff to support our being happy recognizing that happiness really comes from within. So, if this is true, what is it that mindfulness does to the mind to have or to make this dramatic benefit? Open, responsive relationship to life possible. Well, in the teachings of our tradition, the Buddha talked about seven qualities of mind. Qualities of mind that we all have, some of which we recognize, some of which we don't, some of which we value, some of which we don't, but they all can be developed through practice. And through the development of these seven factors or seven qualities of mind, the mind comes into what we call balance where the mind is not tilted off balance or out of balance one way or the other. Three of the factors are energizing. They energize the mind, they energize the body through the development of energy, through the development of interest, or just you know taking an interest in your life, and through what is called investigating the way things are. So often, we go through life not really paying very much attention. Just enough attention to get through. Well, that's not good enough if you really want to develop the mind. But it's paying close attention and really looking at not only the unique and uh, uh, situations in life that demand your attention, but to really look at the things that you do habitually every day. Now, what am I talking about? We all brush our teeth, I hope. We all go to the toilet. We all eat. We wash the dishes. We make the bed. Some of us make the bed. Some of us don't. But nevertheless, most of our a lot of our life is just routine habit. It's so familiar, we've stopped paying attention. 
not good enough if you want to develop the mind. It's by paying attention to even those very ordinary, mundane, boring, habitual, or I should say repetitive activities of mind that we can then develop these three qualities, these three energizing energy, interest, and the investigation of the way things really are. But if you're going to generate all this energy in the mind, you need some tranquilizing, not tranquilizers, tranquilizing to, to bring it into balance. Because, you know, we've all had experience of just getting over-amped when we're younger, particularly. At our age, we could wish for it. But nevertheless, <laughs> but for the most part, we know what it's like to get so wound up, you know, too many cups of coffee, too much stimulation, moving too fast. And if there isn't some balance to that, we'll just race out of control. Won't be present. We'll be flying over everything. And so the tranquilizing factors of mind are tranquility or calmness of mind that is supported by and leads to a calmness of body. And then also this collectedness of mind that I mentioned before. The continuity of your attention calms the mind down, stabilizes the mind. We could say the concentrating of the mind stabilizes the mind so it's not so pushed and pulled and uh, knocked about by the experiences of life. And the third of the tranquilizing factors is equanimity. The mind that doesn't fall into the extremes of reactivity or passivity, but remains in touch with experience, knows what it feels like, but doesn't get caught in a reaction to it. The mind is in balance. The mind is equanimous. The mind is uh, non-reactive, where there's an affective neutrality. The seventh factor is awareness itself that develops the three energizing, the three tranquilizing, and brings them all into balance. Because the task of awareness is, as soon as it recognizes we're getting over-amped, over-energized, it sees that and lets go. And we drop into a little more tranquility. If we're getting too tranquil, too relaxed mentally, awareness notices that and brings a little more interest, a little more energy, a little more investigation to what's going on. And so it's mindfulness that develops and brings all of these other three energizing, three tranquilizing factors into balance. But actually, all we can do is try to be energetic, look closely, and pay attention. The rest of the seven factors, the joy, the delight, the calmness, the stability, and the equanimity, they come as a result of paying attention. So out of the seven, you only need to remember three. Be interested, pay attention, look closely. That's all. The rest come from doing those three. If you're mindful with interest and you really pay close attention, 
the calmness, the energy, the interest, the joy, the delight, the equanimity, the balance, it all comes. When these seven factors are aroused they, and brought into balance, they bring about a transformation in the mind that I want to speak about. But first I want to mention that these seven factors, when the Buddha spoke of these seven factors, called the seven factors of awakening, the seven factors of enlightenment, he identified it as the talk to be given to those who are ill. And even when the Buddha himself was ill, he asked one of his disciples to give him a talk on the seven factors of awakening. Because by paying carefully attention, careful attention, and developing those qualities as they're spoken about, the mind comes into balance, and from the balanced mind comes better health. So it's called the Healing Sutra, or the Healing Discourse of the Buddha. When these seven factors are brought into uh, maturity, if you will, and brought into balance, there's an extraordinary condition of mental and physical comfort, happiness, and well-being that comes with it. And it comes accompanied by six qualities. The first of them is tranquility, where both physically and mentally we feel tranquil, where there's no agitation of the body and no agitation or worry of the mind. It is experienced in the body as light, soothing, cool sensations. That'd be good. It's experienced in the mind as a sense of, it's all okay. Whatever you're experiencing, when this level of mind is developed, whatever you experience, it's okay. The second quality is a lightness of mind and a lightness of body, where both the body and the mind are very lively. They're just full of energy. And we experience this as the creative mind, where the mind is just sees possibilities that it never saw before. And the body feels so light, you sometimes feel like you're floating or that you're just full of helium. No weight or no apparent weight to the body at all. So, of course, the teacher instructs you to uh, be careful not to think that you really are as light as you feel because we can, we can get really in there. The second or the third quality is a pliancy of mind where both the mind and the body become very gentle, very tender, very um, able to, to, to bend and move with any circumstances that appear in life where you become very accommodating of others. Wouldn't that be nice? And your mind becomes flexible and adaptable to any experience, no matter what it is, where the mind can wrap itself around, can be with any experience. And practice has a strong momentum, and there's no, no sense of it having uh, starting and stopping fits and starts, where there's just an ongoing momentum where the mind adapts to anything, everything. The fourth quality is a quality of health, where both the mind and the body are very healthy. And 
it enables one, in this case, to have a lot of gentle stamina in meditation practice. It's the point, it's the time when you can sit for two or three hours without any aches, without any pains, without any tension in the body, and even after sitting two or three hours, it feels like you've only been sitting for a minute or two. Possible. Happens often, actually. Where the mind is um, very comfortable and there's no sense of it being oppressed or burdened or struggling with anything. That's good. That'd be good. The fifth quality is proficiency where the mind and body are very strong. Not just healthy, not just light, but very, health, uh, very strong, enabling one to be present moment to moment for long periods of time. In fact, there's one meditation center in, in Burma where I was practicing that their instruction, their guidance, their direction for you in practice is to learn to sit for 24 hours, to learn to stand for 24 hours, to learn to walk for 24 hours without struggle, without harmful effects to the body or the mind. That's, that's, that's what they want you to do when you go there. And, and with practice, you can do that. The sixth quality, or the last quality I want to speak about in this uniqueness of mind that comes when the seven factors are developed is what's called straightness of mind, where the mind, the mind seeing and knowing is so straight, you can't deceive yourself. Also, you're not deceived by others. And it means that what's going on in you, you know for sure. No spin, no distortion, no rationalization, no explanation, no defensiveness. It's just an easeful acceptance. This is the way it is. Even if you're reacting, you know this is the way it is. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, this is the way it is. And the mind is so straight. It's this straightness of mind which allows us to come to really deep understanding of the way things are. Not what we want them to be, not how we hoped them to be, not how our parents or political party told us they are, but it's how they really are. And this is the source, this understanding is the roots of liberation of mind. When these seven factors attended by these six qualities are developed, the Buddha said of these seven factors, these seven factors being perfectly seen by me, mean based on his personal experience, when activated within oneself and repeatedly developed in an ongoing way, conduce to knowing through extraordinary insight, meaning knowing through your own experience, this is the way things are, where you're no longer massaging beliefs and concepts into explanation, but that you really see for yourself this is the way it is. And not only that, but it, these factors, when developed, conduce to knowing through penetrating delusion. What's that mean? Well, 
you know, if you walked into a museum, you walk through the front door and there's the big entry hall and on the far side of the hall there's a huge tapestry. 20 feet by 30 feet, huge tapestry. And from one end of the hall you look at it and you see a picture of, for example, two women sitting at a table having a conversation over a bowl of fruit. And you look at it and because it's so magnificent, your mind is just drawn into the imagined conversation that they could be having and the location and the emotion expressed in their, in their appearance and the deliciousness of the fruit. And so you're, you're kind of absorbed into the picture. And as you walk across the, the hall, the entry hall, and you get closer, at some point you're close enough and you don't see the whole picture. All you see is a bowl of fruit and it's looking pretty good. Like, wouldn't you like to just reach in there and have a piece? But if you keep watching, walking closer and the docent leaves the room and you can get so close that you can really see the threads that that tapestry is made of, you realize that whole picture, that whole emotional drama, that whole thing that you got absorbed in is just thread little pieces of colored thread. That's it. We call this view of that tapestry the pixelated view. Because that tapestry, there's no women, there's no fruit, there's no conversation. It's just a pile of threads. Well, why did the Buddha say, seeing through the illusion of appearance, through penetrating the illusion, why is that so important? The Buddha said, when you develop these factors of mind, it allows you to see through the appearance of things. Well, to the pixelated view of the way things are. Now, why is that so important? At one time, the Buddha was ill. He was sick. And it says that his illness was severe and deadly, meaning it would lead to death. And it was intensely painful. But with his mind, he was able to experience it as though unoppressed and without being distressed. Because he was patient, mindful, and fully aware of the painful sensations as they really were. Well, why is that so <laughs> magnificent? Well, one commentarian says that actually by paying that kind of attention, he was able to clearly know the nature of the sensations that he was feeling. And another com commentarian said that he was discerning with insight knowledge the momentary existence of what were initially felt to be physically, bodily, painful sensations. Meaning, he got into the pixelated view and understanding of what was being experienced. Meaning that he kind of slipped through the concept of, I'm sick, my body, and got to the actual tangible, experiential element of this is the way it is. 
with patience, with clarity, with understanding, without being locked into or deluded by the misunderstanding, this is my body, it's sick. And by penetrating the veil of delusion, was able to connect with the way things are. And it said that he healed the body through that clarity of understanding and through the power of mind to not get caught in the filter of my body, it's me, it's sick, was able to, the power of the mind, the purity of the mind that could do that, generated purity or pure physical experience that was not diseased. By doing that, the Buddha was able to live for another 10 months. This occurred just 10 months before he died. He was able to live another 10 months by maintaining that level of awareness. Now, when you're into the pixelated view of things, it doesn't mean that you can't relate to others. It means that while you live in ordinary reality and you relate to others, you also have the experience simultaneously of the pixelated view of things where you're not identified with the composite picture. In this clear recognition of the pixelated phenomena occurring in the body, what the Buddha saw, what we see, is that physical experience is conditioned by, in the Buddha's language, four things. This whole body comes into existence and exists throughout life due to four things. The first is karma. We got a body because of karma. Just as there's a genetic profile in every human being born, there's also a karmic profile in every being that's born. Some of us are born with strong constitution, never get sick, no problem. Others are born sick from the day sick from day one, just kind of vulnerable to whatever's going around. Some of us born live long lives unencumbered with struggle. Others born short life full of difficulties. Why? Who can explain that? Well, the law of karma has been articulated by those who paid close enough attention to be able to say, and while we may not have paid that close attention, and we may not be able to say, and we may not even want to agree, nevertheless, there are those who have paid attention. And what they say is, karma is the law of cause and effect. Well, you know, there are physical laws that we live with, we don't argue with. <laughs> the laws of chemistry, the laws of physics, that's the way it is. You don't have to believe it. You don't even have to prove it. But you still got to live by it. Same with the laws of biology. This is the way it is, biologically. We're a biological being. Things happen. Do we? I mean, we may not understand it. We may not like it. But that's the way it is. Same with karma. We may not understand it. We may not see it. We may not like it. Well, that's the way it is. There's also the environment as a cause for or a condition for physical health. You know, 
if it's hot out, you sweat. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not your fault. It, this is the way it is. You know, uh, if you live in a polluted environment, you drink bad water, you eat bad food, and you got bad air to breathe. You know what? Probably it's going to have an impact on you physically. Right? We know that. So, what we can see is that karma deals us a deck of a hand of cards that we have to play out. The environment in which we live, and sometimes we can't change it, also is a player in this game. The food we eat clearly has an effect on physical experience. If you don't eat good food, cumulatively, it could have an effect. Or if you don't eat at all, definitely going to have an effect. If you eat too much, that has an effect. If you eat too much of the wrong thing, clearly has an effect. Okay. The Buddha said, all that's a given. Do the best you can with it. But he said, there's one more cause for the, for the physical condition that we experience, and that's the mind. How your mind is makes a big difference on your physical health. An angry mind, even in a moment, causes tightness, contraction, heat in the body. Imagine if you stayed angry, aggressive, for a lifetime. Well, the short lifetime that you'll have. Or for those who are very loving. Just really find a reason to be very loving and accepting and patient and tolerant. Has an effect not only in the quality of their experience, but in their appearance and the quality of their life. We've also seen through other uh, research how the quality of the mind, the quality of awareness, has a huge effect on blood pressure, heart rate, cholesterol, everything else is affected by it. And especially if, if you can just relax the mind, it has such a positive beneficial effect on the body. Nevertheless, the mind doesn't perform miracles. The mind lives within the realm of what is possible just like all of science, all of, but most of us do not yet know the power and the range of what's possible through a developed mind. Nevertheless, the, the Buddha encouraged us to reflect daily. This body grows old. This body gets sick. This body will die. If you're growing old, there it's normal. It's natural. It's to be expected. Be prepared. If the body gets sick, it's normal. It's natural. This is the way it is with human bodies. Be prepared. This body's going to die. It's normal. It's natural. This is the way it is. Be prepared. We be prepared, paying attention to the mind. This is the work. Within the limits, the biological, the chemical, the physical laws of nature that this human body exists, within those limits, the mind can make a difference. But when the mind stops, the body dies. The mind stops, the body dies. You know, the corpse just, when the mind leaves, the corpse just rots, blows away to dust eventually, can't be revived. Mahasi Saido, who is the 
monk of the last century in, in Burma, practicing uh, meditation and is actually the kind of the granddaddy of the tradition that we practice and teach in. In speaking about healing through a mindfulness, he says, the disease is cured because the unhealthy material elements in the body vanish or are extinguished after having been overwhelmed by the healthy material elements of the body that are conditioned into existence by the quality of the mind. The mind, pure mind, energetic mind, balanced mind, generates physical material in the body. If it's strong enough and long enough, eventually the quality of the mind, conditioning the materiality, overcomes the unhealthy materiality of the body. This is what he says. Here in the West, medical researchers and scientists have been studying the effects of mindfulness in all kinds of things. And I'm going to report some of them here in a minute. They are finding statistically significant medical effects from someone or people who participate in a mindfulness program one hour a day for six weeks. One hour a day for six weeks produces statistically significant medical benefits in those who practice mindfulness. If one hour a day for six weeks can have a statistical significance, imagine what 20 hours a day for three months could do. 20 hours a day for three months. Mahasi Sayadaw set up a meditation center where he invited people to come practice 20 hours a day for two to three months. There have been some well, what would we say? Miraculous cures take place there. But it's not miraculous. It's what happens when you develop a pure, refined mind. It is not a miracle. It's not unnatural. It's within the laws of physics and chemistry and biology and within the laws of the mind. In Burma, they call it, when you go to the meditation center like that, they call it striving for the Dharma. It's not striving for good health. It's striving to realize Nibbana. That's what the Buddhist teachings points to, Nibbana, liberation of mind. Okay? So there's an understanding among traditional Burmese, traditional Buddhists, that when you go to the meditation center, you strive for the Dharma. It means you practice to reach Nibbana. Come hell or high water, Nothing stops you. Well, some of those people who go have, are sick, are close to death, are dying, or, or, or have medical conditions where they get afraid of dying, so they go to the meditation center to get the Dharma before they die. As I said, 20 hours a day from day one, only two meals a day, uh, both finished before 11 in the morning, and um, just a continuity of silent sitting and walking practice. 
under the guidance of usually a monk. In some places, it's a nun. Most of us would think that is not the way to perfect health. <laughs> but that's just an understanding, maybe a misunderstanding that we have at this point. One of my teachers there, named Ujjatila, he's now the head of the, the chief preceptor at this meditation center. When he was doing his two months of practice, he went 15 days, no sleep. Got up, just sat and walked. 15 days, no sleep, no harmful effects. Balanced mind, not reacting, not, not bothering to make a big deal of anything, just noticing this is the way it is. Myself, nothing like that, but over the course of the four years I was there, I saw for myself, through my own experience, an hour to an hour and a half of sleep a night, plenty, plenty when the mind is in balance, when the mind is developed, when there's this ongoing attention to the way things are, then there are magnificent effects. Okay, now, you know, John Cabot is in, has, has developed this mindfulness-based stress reduction program. It is in, well, it's everywhere now. They even play it on the plane. Some channels on the plane have a little guided mindfulness thing. You're sitting on a plane, you channel six. Sit quietly, pay attention. To you. No. And it's in all kinds of, it's in over 200 uh, medical institutions around the world. And it has proven effective for managing stressful conditions and pain management, particularly. Well, in this meditation center where I was, there was a woman, a 60-year-old woman, who had high blood pressure and uh, hypertension, really, uh, stress for 26 years. And her blood pressure was so high, she had to check it several times a day. I mean, I think that might keep it high, but nevertheless, had to check it daily. And even though she went to get traditional Burmese and Western medical uh, attention, nothing was effective in, in dealing with this hypertension. But she was afraid to strive for the Dharma, even though it was in her family to do so. But eventually she decided that she needed to strive for the Dharma. So she went to the meditation center. Nothing special occurred for four days. But on the fifth day, her blood pressure was so high, she couldn't sit up. And her, ch her children came to take her away from the meditation center saying, this is bad for you. So she was unable to even lift her head. So the kids came, took her home, and they wanted her to take her, they took her home, and they wanted her to go to the doctor. But she said, no, it would be much better and nobler for me to die while striving for the Dharma than to give up. So she went back to the meditation center and continued. While sitting, her whole body became very heavy, very sluggish. She swayed and leaned to one side about to fall over. But she was instructed to just pay attention to each one of those experiences, which she did. And at some point, something in her chest blew up. She says, something in, burst in her chest, and her whole body was engulfed in heat. It was like it was burning up, and she was emitting light. Don't ask me how. Recent, scientific, recent science research has concluded human beings' bodies emit light. 
Well, in this case, it was noticeable light. And in her striving for mindfulness, she was then able to sit for longer periods of time, up to two and a half hours, and felt like it had only been a minute. She strove to her teacher's satisfaction, meaning she realized Nibbana, and upon returning home, she has had no, no symptoms of hypertension, stress, or high blood pressure since that time. Well, Johnny's right. John Kabat-Zinn's right. It's pretty powerful. But that's not the only benefit. Other tests have been done on adults with rheumatoid arthritis. Participated in a six-month meditation program. Experienced less emotional distress and a higher vitality or higher quality of well-being than those who did not practice mindfulness. Another test was done by, where are they from? Wesley Newton Wesley Hospital, Massachusetts. Purpose of the study was to evaluate the effectiveness of meditation-based stress reduction on fibromyalgia. 10-week group outpatients. They measured their well-being, pain, sleep, fatigue, feeling refreshed in the morning. 51% showed a moderate to marked improvement. And the preliminary findings suggest that meditation-based stress reduction program is effective in treating patients with fibromyalgia. At the meditation center where I was practicing, 40-year-old male came in, had arthritis of the knee, had it for five years. Again, he was spurred or stirred by spiritual urgency, and he went to the meditation center to strive for the Dharma. While striving, his knees, both of them, swelled up and the pain was intense. The longer he sat, the more intense the pain became. But as instructed, he persisted in noting it, being with the actual sensation. It was so excruciating that tears rolled down his cheeks, and his whole body was thrown forwards and backwards and sideways, and it was jerked upwards in the most awkward manner for four continuous days. And he kept noting through all that. While engaged in the four days of doing this, mindfully noting of this, he saw a vision of his knee and his bones breaking apart. And he screamed to himself, my knee broke apart. After this incident, he was so scared, he didn't dare to be mindful. Nevertheless, he persisted with encouragement, resumed noting, eventually the swelling and the pain of the knee completely disappeared, and he has never been troubled by arthritis since. Not, it's not magical. It's, not, it's just the power of the mind. Okay, there was an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction research on patients, outpatient even, uh, who had breast and prostate cancer patients. Significant improvements in overall quality of life, symptoms of stress, sleep quality, and shift in their immune profile from one associated with depressive symptoms to a more normal profile. It was the first study to show that changes in cancer related cytokine production from mindfulness, meaning mindfulness-based stress reduction activates the immune system in a positive way for dealing with cancer. This is Western science research. Another one, eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction with HIV patients. 
Mindfulness meditation slowed the progression of HIV with no loss of T cells, while the control group showed significant declines. Results were dose-related, meaning the more mindfulness meditation classes that were attended, the higher the T cell count. HIV. It's just mindfulness. Not only was that, they took some mindfulness, uh, people practicing mindfulness, eight-week training, and they uh, t trained them for eight weeks. They tested them at the end of it and at the end of four months later. But at the end of it, they exposed them all to the flu, flu virus. Okay? Among the mindfulness group, significant increases in blah, 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 positive affect, and increases in the antibodies to flu vaccine. Mindfulness, good for flu. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Don't bother with that shot. Just get your mindfulness going. Okay. So now we had a woman in the meditation center, had a, had a gripping pain in the abdomen. Doctor diagnosed it as a large tumor in the belly requiring surgery. After four years of enduring this, the doctor insisted on surgery, and the woman was thinking, I may die during the operation, and I haven't yet attained the Dharma, so I'm going to go to the meditation center and strive for the Dharma first. After sitting for a couple of days, she, of course, experienced this excruciating pain. But she was encouraged by her teacher to be mindful in every posture, to sit comfortably, even to recline against the wall, or to lie down, to sit in a painless way. But she wanted to visit her doctor, and the doctor told her, you need surgery to move, remove the tumor. If you continue to sit, you might die. But she stayed at home for a couple of days, and then she decided to return to the meditation center. And the teacher instructed her to continue practice in all postures and while eating, acknowledging, whether you die or whether the tumor will disintegrate, we'll know that later. <laughs> I mean, that's a high, that's a high bar. <laughs> Nevertheless, she continued to strive in this way for 15 days, and while eating, she smelled a very putrid odor. And reflecting on it, she thought, it must be due to her tumor. And after further days of noting, the tumor disintegrated and vanished from her body. When she went back to the doctor for a medical exam, he was shocked, saying, what'd you do to it? <laughs> Never reoccurred again. Couple more if you'll bear with me for a little time. Recent test, uh, recent research, John Kabat-Zinn did a uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction intervention for treating psoriasis. You know psoriasis, the skin condition? When receiving ultraviolet light therapy and listening to a meditation stress reduction tape while receiving the light therapy, psoriasis cleared up four times faster in a quarter of the time is if you didn't listen to the mindfulness tape. At the meditation center, 20-year-old male came in to practice, had severe skin condition. It was driving him crazy. When he was younger, when he was uh, around 15 or 16, he was living in a place in Burma where he had to eat a lot of wild game, including wild cats, snakes, iguanas, venison, and other non-traditional meat. After eating in this way for some time, his whole body became covered with uh, skin condition. 
and it was itchy and painful, where his complexion became spotted with white patches of leucoderma. And it was so bad that it kept him awake at night and interfered with his studies and he had to drop out of school. He got medical uh, injections daily for three months, no cure. Went to a skin specialist who gave him medicine injections for two months, no cure. Only by distracting himself with entertainment could he get any relief. His grandfather, who had practiced the Dharma, sent him off to the meditation center. <laughs> said, if medicine doesn't work, maybe this will help. <clears throat> so, when he went to the meditation center, the itching was ever-present, and even though he noted it, it didn't disappear. After nine days, the itching was so intense that he left the meditation center, went back home, but the itching continued to bother him, and he, all he could do was scratch or try to be mindful of it. His grandfather took him back to the meditation center, and the teacher encouraged him to note the itching uninterruptedly, stating confidently that it will eventually disappear. Inspired by this encouragement, when the itch returned, he noted it resolutely, and eventually it did disappear, and he was overjoyed. At the second sitting, after being back, the itch returned more intensely, and it caused him the tears to, to cry. And he says, though I was persistent and firmly continued to note it, quivering and shivering like someone possessed by spirits, the itch did not go away. Then he brought his attention back to the breath, rising and falling. In doing so, suddenly, the itching disappeared. Subsequently, every time the, re the itching reoccurred, it would eventually vanish upon being noted. This made him happy and enthusiastic to keep practicing. On the 19th day of his retreat, the itch returned, and though noted, it did not vanish. Tears fell again, and he was sweating. Suddenly, the entire body was seized by convulsions. But being resolute, he persistently noted, and the itch finally vanished. After five weeks, the intense itching occurred on his legs, arm, back, and head. It disappeared while noting resolutely. Later, the entire body became itchy all over. When noted firmly, it vanished, as though leaving the body through the crown of his head and the uncomfortable heat that he had previously been experiencing also disappeared simultaneously. After that, while sitting outside, a stray dog came to sit beside him, but it stank so bad that he drove the dog away. But even though he drove the dog away, the stink was still around. So he went into his room and he discovered that it was his body that was stinking. And even though he took a shower, uh, and a bath and soap, he couldn't remove the smell, and the stench continued emanating from his body for two days. And because of his embarrassment, he didn't leave his room. And while, while mindfully noting the smell, it vanished, and all the itching and irritation sensations also disappeared. His blood became clear, his skin cleared up, and he didn't have any more itching, and his skin was restored to normal, fresh, smooth, pleasant complexion. After returning home, he went to the uh, dermatological hospital for a checkup, and the nurses who had expressed doubt that anything could cure this were surprised at his changed appearance and asked, how'd you do it? And then saving the last one for, uh, for you, it's... Uh, Medical studies here in the West have shown that meditation's effectiveness at decreasing substance abuse and relapse of substance abuse in several settings has been proven. The changes in thought processes and the brain function that accompanies meditation have also contributed to scientists' understanding of the biological addiction process. 
In a study at the University of Washington, the authors evaluated the effectiveness of a Vipassana meditation on substance use and psychosocial outcomes. And the results indicate that participants compared with others who did not receive the mindfulness showed significant reductions in alcohol, marijuana, and crack cocaine use. Participants showed decreases in alcohol-related problems and psychiatric symptoms, as well as increase in positive psychosocial outcomes. Should be mandatory school. In the meditation center where I was, a young man, heavily addicted to alcohol, couldn't make it to the center because he was always drunk before anybody could get him there. <laughs> and even though his siblings had striven for the Dharma or strived for the Dharma, they encouraged him to, they couldn't get him there before he got drunk. But one day, they got him before he woke up, took him to the meditation center, and made him practice. And he was there, so he decided to practice. And he found so much satisfaction in his practice that he refused to return home. He wanted to become a monk. But the monk there said, no, you have a family. You've got to take care of your obligations. You've got to go home. But while he went home, he continued to practice his mindfulness while he was peddling his wares. He was a, he was a salesman. And while also harvesting his rice. Didn't drink anymore. Once, when he was, he was curious as to whether he was, would have any longing for alcohol, he, he, he got a bottle of uh, alcohol and he smelled it. He smelled the liquor in the mug. And while he was noting the smell, he attained Nibbana. When he, was about, when he was about to die, he became aware of his death and he narrated his dying process to his wife while mindfully noting the leaving of sensations in his body, saying, oh, now the part of my leg from the ankle to the knee, no longer alive. Oh, now up through the thigh, no longer alive. Followed it all the way up to his, uh, up through his body where, let's see, past the navel stage, up to the center of the chest. Stage by stage, he described the changes that took place in his body as he was dying. Finally, he uttered, soon I will die. Don't be afraid of dying. One day you too will have to die. Just make it a point to strive for the Dharma. Soon after those words, he died. Okay. Have, are you convinced yet? <laughs> I don't probably have to convince you, but what is it? that makes it possible for some of us, or, or some of them, to undertake that practice. You know, there's this compelling need, you know, they're, they've got a medical condition, they're about to die, they're, or it's so painful that they can't get relief from, from medicine. And they have this option in Burma, strive for the Dhamma. It's not go to the meditation center and see if you can get rid of your disease, is go to the meditation, see if you can attain Nibbana. And that's what they do. And through the purity of the mind, and obviously going through some pretty significant health crises, and enduring symptoms that any of us should be off to the doctor's office in a minute with, and persevering through that, and in slipping through the veil of delusion. This is the important part. Where it's no longer, my body is sick. It's just heat. It's just pressure. It's just itching. It's just the nature of conditions. And through sustaining that understanding, the mind becomes extraordinarily purified. And the physical material elements of the body that are conditioned by the mind 
replace those unhealthy material elements of the body, bringing with it uh, recovery of health. So I asked the doctors at Mayo Clinic <laughs> when they were going to get on the bandwagon. And of course they have. Uh, there's a, they're, they're, they're developing a whole mind-body uh, interface for all the doctors, all the personnel in the offices uh, as an option for every patient that comes to the Mayo Clinic to receive training in the mind as a complement to the medical interventions that they'll get from the doctor. They're packaging it in such a way as to be able to market it to other medical centers around the world. Let's hope Maui Memorial Medical Center gets it quickly. Great. There certainly is a need for it, and all of you have your initial training. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to the Dharma.